Good morning, everyone. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Um, on the phone with me this morning are Sue Siklowski, who is the executive director for the Vermont School Boards Association, and Neil O'Dell, who is the past president of the Vermont School Board Association. He's currently on the Board uh, of Education in Norwich. And, Neil, I just saw on a letter that um, the School Board Association sent to the House Education Committee that you are also on the SAU 70 Interstate School District Board. Uh, welcome, Sue, and um, welcome, Neil. Could you, Neil, could you tell me what that is? <laughs> it's yours. Thank you very much, Pat. Um, yeah, so Vermont um, is unique. We've actually have two interstate school districts in Vermont, one here um, that serves students in Norwich, Vermont, and Hanover, New Hampshire. So mm-hmm. that is the Dresden Interstate School District. The administrative unit that oversees that is SAU 70. So that's what uh. you were referring to in your earlier comments. And then the other interstate school district is just a few miles north of us, and that is the Rivendell School District. Oh. They're also an interstate school district. And that's Bradford, right? Uh, yeah, the, fairly Bradford, right. Orford. Excellent. Thank you. I saw that, and I thought maybe that was what it was. But anyway, I'm sorry, Sue. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you both here because we all know what's coming this coming Tuesday next week. And um, what I've kept forgetting to mention is it's also Super Tuesday. Somebody reminded me of that the other day. haven't seen much advertising to get out and vote. This is a big day. All around. So I asked uh, Sue and Neil to come on because they're sort of right in the midst of things these days since we know that school board budgets are going to be a hot topic this year. And I wanted to have them come on and tell us a little bit about um, the, the cost drivers. Uh, the, the school board association wrote an amazing, very lengthy 10, 12 pages uh, to the House Education Committee. And it talked about cost drivers and school district budgets. And I think before we decide how we're going to vote, we really need to understand why it is the way it is. Um, and um, I don't know, uh, Sue, Neil, I don't know how you want to work this this morning, but um, will you be involved in any of the, the pre-town meetings? Because we in Ber- I live in Berlin, and I think we have the same 50 people that show up for pre-town, and we have an actual town meeting. Uh, some things get voted on the floor. Um, but have you been involved or helping schools to present their budgets to um, to their voters? Pat, VSBA provides information to school boards in order to help them um, communicate about their budget. So we will typically um, have a webinar every year that covers that for school boards. And, of course, this year it's even more important for school boards to be communicating often and through different modes of communication with the public so that people understand um, when the vote is happening and what they're voting on. Well, and it's also very confusing for schools to, uh, for people, me, to understand how it all happens because on your local level, I know our school board tries very hard to make it as, as a streamlined, efficient, effective, all those words, and they work really hard on it. Then when it gets folded into the big budget in the sky, we get hit with, um, a higher, uh, cost than we thought we were going to be hit with because, 
Um, I think most schools, and, and maybe I'm sure, Neil, you might agree, they work really hard to present a, a fair budget. No, I, I agree with you, Pat. I think school boards do, uh, you know, a lot of hard work. I mean, honestly, the work starts probably all the way back in, you know, late summer and fall when we begin the budgeting process. Um, so there's a lot of hours that are spent, you know, coming over expenditures and making sure that the budgets that we put forward to voters are what's necessary to, um, you know, to run our schools, to meet the needs of our students and to, uh, you know, meet the strategic goals that we have in place. The the real challenge here is that, you know, we unfortunately we've gotten to a, a moment here where the, the funding formula itself, yep. really there is no – linear correlation between how much you spend locally and what that property tax rate ends up being. And, you know, it's compounded by challenges that when when school boards present these budgets to voters, you know, now in March, we're using uh, our best guess as to what things will be when that tax bill arrives in August. Um, But they're really only projections because a lot of the final figures needed for the tax rate calculation don't come until the end of the legislative session. So, you know, we're doing our best to try to make sure that the the community knows what they're voting on and what the impact will be. Um, But there is a little measure of uncertainty in all of it. Right, for sure. And the the number we have all heard statewide is 20.5%. Five or six percent uh, property tax, which is a little staggering. So, um, I'm hoping people have been paying attention to what goes into their local um, school budgets. And I, when I ran for the legislature to represent uh, Berlin and part of Barry City, I went. I and shame on me, but I, I started going to the school board, and I didn't have any kids in the school. Um, but very few people go on a regular basis to the school boards. I'm hoping now that maybe they're by Zoom that people will pay attention because that's where the decisions get made, uh, you know, on those monthly school board meetings. So um, we need to. Yeah, take... I don't. I don't disagree with you. I mean, I know traditionally we've seen, you know, somewhat low turnouts at a lot of school board meetings, but I will say I think. Um, you know, folks are paying attention. I just had a meeting last night with the Norwich School Board, and we had, you know, probably a good 15, 20 people in the audience Excellent. in person, but a good, uh, you know, 30 plus folks online, as you had mentioned on Zoom. So right. people are paying attention. That's you know, great. And, and that's a good thing. That's the same with the legislature. When I was there, you'd get 10 people in just listening in in the rooms, the committee rooms. But now on Zoom, you see 40, 50 people listening in. And I'm like, that is great that uh, people are, are being informed and educated. So, um, Sue, your association wrote this amazing a letter, which I would encourage folks to track it down on your um, website. And you talked about the cost drivers in education and put the testimony into four bu- uh, four buckets. Could you talk about those buckets and maybe you, the both of you can discuss these um, uh, cost drivers and um, what can or cannot be done? Some of them are just out of our hands. Yes, we'd be happy to. The four buckets that we identified were, um, the first one is cost drivers within school district budgets that could be influenced by the legislature. The second one is cost drivers created by the legislature's use of the education fund to fund programs. The third is cost drivers created by legislation containing unfunded mandates. And then the fourth is the importance of state-level leadership for education. So the the 
bucket that had um, probably the, the most areas in it is the first one. Um, so I can go through those. Uh, yes, there are six areas that we identified. Um, would you like me to go through those? Yes, please. I'd love it. Thank you. Sure. And maybe Neil can help me with a, a few of them um, because we actually um, provided this testimony. There were um, five people yep. that provided this testimony, four school board members and myself. Um, so the first area that we identified within the first bucket is um, school employees' salaries, wages, and health benefits. And just to sort of um, level set on that topic, um, approximately 80% of school district budgets are um, made up of school employees' salaries, wages, and health benefits. And um, so there's always a lot of discussion um, around the um, health care costs, particularly right. of school employees, and how those have been dramatically increasing over the last um, few years. And um, what's important to know is that we have a um, statewide bargaining framework for mm -hmm. health um, benefits of school employees that was put in place um, about five years ago. And um, that has uh, not helped with um, slowing the growth of the cost as it was hoped that it would. Um, and so it was also in conjunction with a move to high deductible plans so that the two together were um, supposed to slow the rate of growth and the mm -hmm. cost of these benefits. Um, that did not happen, and the most recent increase um, is 16.4%. Um, wow. So in our testimony, which, uh, as you noted, is quite lengthy, um, we provided some very um, detailed information about ways that we think the, um, that process should be changed um, in order to make sure that the uh, if it makes if, if the process gets all the way to an uh, arbitration, that the arbitrator or the arbitrators um, really take a look at um, appropriately balancing access to health care benefits and reasonable cost containment in order to ensure the financial sustainability of the plan. So um, th we've made a number of detailed um, recommendations regarding that process. And then we also made some recommendations that um, originated from the commissioners that VSA, uh, VSBA has appointed to the, um, the commission that does that statewide bargaining. Uh. Um, and we talked about restructuring that commission um, in order to really create an engaged group that um, has an interest in the outcome and that would work towards sustainable, high-quality health care coverage um, at a cost that's affordable to our taxpaying public. Well, that's great. Thank you for that. Um, I was just going to ask you, who is on the bargaining table? So it's representatives from the School Board Association. Um, who else is at the table? So the School Board Association appoints um, five representatives and two alternates, and then the Vermont NEA, which yep. um, is a union representing public school employees, um, appoints also appoints um, the same number of people to the commission. Cool. Um, so, is anybody there from? I don't know if the school the the school is there. Anybody there from the state um, that's on the other side of the of the, who's doing the bargaining? I guess is what I'm asking. 
So it's the, that group of um, five from each side yeah. that's doing the bargaining. Oh, and as part of that um, process, they do uh, call upon different right. uh, state officials to um, provide testimony um, if they're going into if they're doing it um, through arbitration. Excellent. It sounds like there's an even number there. I don't know how that would work, but um, I, when I was commissioner of uh, personnel, I was involved in the state bargaining, and that that's quite a pressure time for everybody for sure because you want the best deal, but you want it at the best cost as well. So. Um, uh, so why don't you continue on? And I don't know, uh, Neil, if you have a comment about the benefits. I noted Neil is a very prolific and excellent writer. He has written several um, commentaries that have appeared in Digger and elsewhere. Um, and so um, take it away, Neil. What's your comments about uh, about this particular cost driver? Yeah, thanks, Pat. I think, <laughs> you know, when it comes to the healthcare piece of things, I think what um, folks need to realize, especially, you know, our, our regular community taxpayers out there, is that we're the ones that are basically paying for these benefits. And I, I understand that there's been, I think, a narrative uh, related to this, that this is a systemic healthcare issue that really needs to be fixed. Um, but I want to focus on the, the framework that really was put in place for the bargaining because I think that has as much to do huh. with the cost increases that we've seen um, as it is this, you know, this trending health care issue. And so I don't want to ignore that. And as Sue mentioned, you know, the, the VSBA had offered uh, a series of recommendations on how we could improve the bargaining process um, to address those cost pressures. Um, and we're hoping that the legislature takes up some of those. I know that uh, folks are keenly aware of the the big increase that we've got this year. But, you know, if I'm honest, we, we've seen these double-digit yep. increases for the past several years. So this isn't new <laughs> for yep. us. But I think it's finally, you know, hit a point where it's got the attention of some folks in the legislature. And I think now is the time for, you know, looking at that framework that's been put in place for the bargaining process and making some changes there. Well, I hope so. Time is sort of running out this year. But well, I know as a voter in Berlin, that when you go and look at the school budget and as is in your letter, 80 percent of our budget is already done. So there's nothing much any of us can do about that. Um, and so we're looking at 20% that we may or may not have control over. And that's sort of, that's a little disheartening as far as being a voter goes, um, which is why it's important to pay attention as the year goes on and this budget's being developed. But 80% is a big chunk out of a budget that you, it's done, correct? I mean, it's, that's it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think what you're seeing here is, I mean, school boards, by and large, we're not, you know, this isn't budget bloat, per se, right? It's, oh, no. It's salaries, personnel, benefit costs, and right. these are the, you know, the teachers that are in front of the kids every day. And so you want to make sure that they're, you know, compensated well for uh, for for a difficult position. And, um, you know, we're, we're doing our best to try to, but when, yeah, when the majority of your budget is personnel and benefits, there's very little things that we can, you know, cut without, you know, sometimes affecting program. Right. So, Sue, maybe we can continue on with those cost drivers and get through that section and head on to the, another two or three here. Okay. So the second one that we identified was staff-to-student ratios, 
And this is something that the legislatures actually, um, they have been, it has been on their radar for a while. Uh, in 2018, they passed um, a law that required a report, and they received that report on student-to-staff ratios in 2019. There were three recommendations in that report, um, and they're kind of lengthy, so I won't go into them in, uh, specifically. But as far as we know, those recommendations have not been um, implemented. So we linked that report in our written testimony um, and recommended that um, the legislature review that report again and commit to working on this important lever in controlling education costs. And um, we, I would also note that the House Education Committee is receiving some testimony this afternoon regarding class size, which is huh. um, related to that ratios issue, and that might be something that um, people want to uh, pay attention to. Yeah, I think I was telling you a story um, when I was in the legislature. I was on House Education, and a teacher came in, and she was talking about uh, those that the size of her class, and said that uh, several of her, maybe as much as five, if I'm remembering, some ridiculous number. These kids had to be on. Uh, they were needed special needs kids, and and but each one of them had a. Uh, a paraprofessional with them. So she's facing a classroom of maybe 24 with five or six or seven students that needed um, adult help from these paraprofessionals. And I thought, how did she do that? And she was pretty much looking at us going, could you help? Because it's very difficult. You don't know what's going on in an individual class. Yes, I would um, note that the, uh, I took a look at some of the written testimony for this afternoon, and um, it looks like the House Education Committee is being encouraged to look at minimum class sizes because looking at it from that um, viewpoint shifts the focus to ensuring that there is quality instruction um, happening for students. Right. And, um, and actually the, the testimony points out that um, – Quality instruction can be negatively impacted by very, very small class sizes. Interesting. Well, I, I, Neil, do you have any comment on this class size discussion? Because um, I, to this day, remember that uh, teacher's testimony was like, you know, how they want everybody to learn, including the the kids with the special needs, of course. But then you've got the paraprofessionals, and how do you balance that classroom? Yeah, I mean, you do your best. You certainly want to make sure that those kids that are on, you know, individualized education right. programs are that that we're meeting their needs, right? You know, right. that's uh, absolutely necessary. And then, you know, I mean, I know at least in our district every year, um, you know, the principal and the teachers take a very close look at the classes, not just the class sizes, but the classes themselves and, you know, the student makeup there and trying to figure out, you know, what – What's the right staffing to make sure that we're meeting all the student needs? So those discussions, you know, are happening every year, and and we make sure that we're, you know, doing the best that we can given the resources that we got. Right. Well, I know from this teacher, I mean, she wanted, as you were saying, <coughs> excuse me, to do her best for all her students, but um, needed a little help in sort of balancing out how you do that given the different needs of each of the kids. It was quite a compelling testimony, which I remember to this day. Anyway, are there other cost drivers in this category, Sue, you want to talk about, or we could move on to the, the next bucket? I guess the, uh, the last one I would talk about in this category is facilities, because this is a uh, really important one. 
prior to 2008, Vermont did offer a um, 30% funding for allowable costs for school construction projects using bonded funds. And that was suspended in 2008, and we haven't had any statewide um, school construction programs since that time. And um, we are in a situation now with with a number of schools that are, um, have immediate needs involving failed systems or issues of health, safety, and security right. that should be addressed. And I think that's one of the cost drivers that we're seeing in the school um, school budgets right now. Um, so that's a that's a very important cost driver. Right, and there's also um, Act 74. I think it was um, maybe last year that or the year before that required all schools to test for PCBs. So if you're testing, you've got to fix it once you find it. Um, yeah. And yeah. You, and that's money that if the state's not giving it, it will go to us taxpayers. Correct. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, um, so. Let's let's move on to the cost driver created by the legislator um, out of education funds. Um, that's a good one. We just don't like the word unfunded mandate, which we'll get to, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so our bucket number two is cost drivers created by the legislature's use of the education fund to fund programs. And we provided two examples of this in our testimony. Um, what I would note before talking about those um, two examples is that it's important to understand that when the legislature utilizes the education fund in this way, it has an impact on taxpayers' property tax burden, and that's because the funds for statewide programs, um, such as the ones I'm going to talk about, universal school meals and PCB testing um, and mitigation and remediation for PCBs, those funds are then no longer available to support school budgets um, from the Ed Fund. So the impact is um, higher property taxes. So um, the first one is universal school meals. Mm-hmm. Um, when this was um, put in place by the legislature, VSBA actually advocated for funding it through the general fund, and we continue to believe that this type of expense should be supported by the general fund or, at the very least, creating some dedicated um, source of funds in the education fund that's not the property tax. I just wanted to follow up. I think they are talking about resurrecting the construction uh, aid. Are they not? Because I know the um, career and tech ed people, <clears throat> excuse me, have asked that their facilities be included in that list um, of uh, facilities that will get support. Um, so they're at least discussing it, I believe. Right, Sue? Yes, they are. In fact, they're discussing it uh, more this week. That's great. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Um, I had other things on my list of, uh, uh, I don't know, their unfunded mandates or cost drivers, but clearly mental health um, is a big issue. And you and I talked about that the other day, and I was, I should have known that it was an issue for, for young people. We've heard it, but not to the extent, I think, that that it is an issue in school. Could you and Neil talk about that a little bit? Sure, I'll start and then I'll hand it over to Neil. I would say that um, this is a nationwide problem for children and youth. We're seeing a, a surge in mental health challenges, and Vermont is absolutely no exception to that. Um, there was some really excellent testimony that the Principals Association provided on that topic, um, and it, it outlined why the mental health of students is at the top of list of concerns for principals and other decision makers in school districts. 
and um, the increase in the mental health needs of students has become um, a driver in the increased cost due to the need to provide direct support to students. And that's having, you know, sort of a domino effect in our schools because um, a student with mental health needs may not be able to um, access their education um, in a way that they had in the past. And so that's very important to help them be able to access their education. Um, but this could also have an impact on the ability of other students in the class right. to access their education. So it's just um, an extremely important um, issue to address. And I'll hand it over to you, Neil, for anything else you'd like to add on this topic. Thank you. Neil? Yeah, I would just, I mean, certainly echoing all of, um, you know, the comments that Sue made. Um, you know, it's, it's stuff that we're seeing locally in our schools as well, too. And, um, yeah, you know, a, a kid who is, you know, struggling with some mental health stuff is a kid who's not going to, you know, learn or at least have the environment to learn as well as it normally would. And so we need to address it. You know, we've got folks... Um, you know, on staff that are able to okay. to work with our students and, and help them in that regard. But, you know, as we talk about, you know, cost pressures on schools, you yep. know, this is this is one that's adding to that burden. For sure. Um, can I ask you, I, I've always said Vermont has got so many services when you're in need. And I, I know outside of school, there's a lot of services uh, focused on mental health. Um, do you work with those organizations um I'm thinking about uh, Washington County Mental Health and others. Are, are they available to help um, with the folks that you've got within your schools that that are also specialists in mental health? Is it is it all working together, or um, how does that work when a child needs help? I think that varies um, in different areas of the state, but I, they do work with outside agencies and. Um, our understanding is that in many areas, those outside agencies have um, been stressed themselves. Right. Um, as you know, there's been some um, workforce shortages. Yep. And so what's happened is that um, some of those um, costs have been shifted into um, school district budgets right. as um, school districts you know, respond to the need of their students. Yeah, I, I agree with you. When I worked in state government, I, I watched that happen from general fund to, to schools. And uh, there's that's been for a while, and I'm sure it's escalated. Um, and I know that uh, many of the students, and I have an example of this, but I won't um, take the time now, but sometimes they go home to an environment that isn't conducive to their stability or their mental health. So while you might... Uh, address it and calm things down in the school, they go home and come back the next day um, in a similar condition. And um, that's why I was thinking maybe there was some help from the outside to address that dynamic. Yes, and one of the other um, ways to address um, it is through after-school programs, and, uh, and many districts um, provide those type of programs. That's great. Yeah, that's um, that's on my list of things to talk about. There's the pre-K and after-school programs. Are they those unfunded, or are they part of um, what the state provides for schools? Well, that's a um, that's a complicated question. <laughs> those, those are two different um, programs. We did have uh, some testimony about that when we talked about cost drivers, and one of the things that we recommended in that testimony was that um, 
there, there currently have been some efforts to remove dedicated revenues from the education fund huh. um, for after-school program funds, and uh, we um, spoke about spoke about that and recommended that those efforts um, cease and that the funds remain within the education fund. Great. Um, I'm not allowed to agree or disagree, but good job. <laughs> um, that's it. Just because it just comes out. You need you need to know what you're going to expect financially. You can't plan programs without knowing where the funding source is coming from, and it's got to be a stable, reliable fund. Um, and so there you go. Um, I know I read somewhere that Act 173, which is the Special Education Act, needs some serious um, relook, as according to those who work with it on a regular basis. Uh, Neil, is that something that? Um, that uh, the folks that you work with would like to see happen? Um, I believe it is, but I, I certainly would turn it over to Sue. Oh, okay. Has, uh, probably a, a bigger picture view of this okay. for school districts across the state. Sue, how does how does that work with the folks that you work with? Well, um, Act 173 was passed in 2018, and it changed the special education funding model, um, and it also um, was supposed to change um, – the practice, the model for delivery of services to uh-huh, students, right. um, and it was supposed to include provision of additional instructional time to students who struggle, not not um, only students who are on um, IEPs, but also um, any student who struggles. Um, so it was supposed to um, free up the funds um, from from being um, really strictly accounted for and um, allow for school districts to help all students who struggle. Um, So it moved away from a reimbursement model, which is what we used to have, to a um, a, a block grant type funding model. And um, we're still in the process of um, making that adjustment. But um, I think one of the things that needs to be looked at is um, whether those changes um, actually may have um, been a cost driver uh, in special education. Um, there was some testimony yesterday in the um, House Ways and Means um, from the Agency of Education, um, not necessarily looking at um, that specific question, but it did um, provide some information about what the increase in costs in special education have been in the past few years. Complicated issue, isn't it? Because you want to help each child. But um, I know at one point um, when I was in the the, uh, Department of Ed, there was a parent who wanted his son to go out of state to a special school and there was a lot of discussion about that, and, and um, eventually the child did go out of state, but uh, it was a staggering cost, and you, you, you weigh that. I mean, the child needs the help, so what do you do? You're sort of, you're sort of stuck, and um, uh, it's just very hard to, to deliver um, the services that uh, these children need, and it's very sad, um, I think. It's certainly a very important part right. of... Um Vermont public schools provide to our students. Exactly. Exactly. And thank you. IEP, I always forget um, uh, those letters, so uh, thank you for that. Um, so let's, um, let me see, let's talk about uh, 
We've done facilities on unfunded mandates. Is the universal school luncheon the only unfunded mandate that uh, is out there these days? There must be more. Well, we talked about some unfunded mandates um, that the legislature had um, created in the past few years um, when we did our testimony. And certainly there are many more than this. These are two, just two examples. Um, in 2019, they passed a farm-to-school bill, which uh, contained a requirement to purchase a certain amount of local foods. Right. And in 2021, the miscellaneous education bill established a requirement for schools to provide menstrual products at no cost. And we're certainly not saying these are bad initiatives, not at all. But what we are saying is that um, when you look at these initiatives and many more like them, they add up to quite a bit of money in school district budgets. And so we certainly um, would like legislators to be um, carefully weighing the impacts of Um, pushing any unfunded mandates onto schools. On the phone with us is Charlie from Middlesex. Charlie, you're on the air. Thank you. First, I just wanted to uh, thank the board members for their civic duty. Right. Pain in the neck to be on a board and and show up and listen and do your work. And I just think uh, I'm I'm very impressed by the school board members who do that. Uh, That's by way of Criticizing. What I want to criticize is Act 46. Uh, Act 46, our consolidation uh, law that uh, glommed together a number of different school districts into names that are often peculiar and uh, hardly English. My my consolidated school district now has the the uh, absurd name of a unionized union school district. My specific question to those involved in education twofold. One, has there been any cost-benefit analysis to uh, the effects of Act 60, which according to the Vermont Department of Education, the goal was to improve education outcomes and equity by creating larger and more efficient school governance functions, the government structures. Was that true, or is that proof to be uh, a, a false uh, an unachieved goal. Second Ooh. is, what is the role of of parents and and taxpayers in setting policy at the school level on such issues as the necessity of superintendent's office or the obligation of the school board to break down its budget so that one can see the actual costs associated with the administrators, the curriculum coordinators, those who are actually not involved in delivering services directly to students. Well, Charlie, those are two powerful questions for sure. Um, Sue, I'll take it to you. Maybe Sue and Neil can respond to some of these uh, issues that Charlie just brought up. Yes, I'd be happy to. Thanks for your question, Charlie. I'll try to tackle uh, question number one and then I'll see what Neil has to say about question number two, and I can certainly chime in on that as well. Um, I think your first question was, has there been a cost-benefit analysis of Act 46? And um, I believe that was um, something that the Agency of Education um, was supposed to do, um, and I don't think we've seen that uh, yet. And one of the things that we called for – in our testimony to the legislature last week was um, 
we said we're at a critical junction um, juncture for public education in Vermont, and that many of the issues that we're facing um, can't be addressed without state-level leadership. And um, we made a number of recommendations um, about state-level leadership, and um, of, and one of the things that we um, recommended is ensuring that the next Secretary of Education is experienced, competent, and pro-public education. Um, and we would definitely like to see um, a um, analysis that that you spoke of, um, and we actually have a resolution put forth by our members and passed by our members that, that supports um, that cost-benefit analysis. Um, and then I'll turn it to you, Neil, for the role of parents and taxpayers in setting um, school board policies. There you yep. go, Neil. Um, <laughs> you know, thank, thank you, Sue, you. right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's perfect. Um, and, you know, that's what, the, you know, that's the, the job of board members, right? right. So board members, we, um, you know, we, we work with our community and um, listen to what they have to say and then uh, develop policy. Um, that then guides the work of the school district and the superintendent and, um, you know, implementing things the way that we want. I know Charlie specifically asked about, I think, detailed budgets. Um, certainly would mm -hmm. encourage you and, and others to attend school board meetings, um, you know, and ask those questions. I know in our local district, um, you know, we do uh, throughout the budget cycle, um, do go through the the budget line items in a fair amount of detail so we do get down to that granular level um, but you know it, it involves you know coming to board meetings and, and asking those questions to get the answers that you're looking for and, and boards by and large are very happy to engage in that and I think most of them are on Zoom these days are they not? I, I, it seems to be the trend of them are. I know that we do it yeah locally we do um, our meetings uh, both in person and Zoom um, uh, that being said, you know it uh, it can be a challenge, you know, especially right. for those districts that don't necessarily have um, the right equipment, exactly, um, or the right setup to run these hybrid meetings. They aren't they aren't always as easy as it looks. Yeah, there was a push to make uh, most of these meetings hybrid, so um, hopefully they'll get some help because you're right. I've I've done that on Zoom and and it freezes out on you when you're home looking at a. A, a blank screen, knowing you're missing what the heck you're trying to listen to. So um, let's see. Anyway, Charlie, that was a great um, questions, both questions. I think I, I heard somebody from the Department of Ed the other day that the that report that we're looking for is, is coming soon, as they say. Um, just a lot of uh, delays, but it's, it is coming soon, if not within the next week or two. Um, of course, next week they're, they're – next week we have a um, town meeting, so it's closed, so probably right after before crossover. Anyway, thank you, Charlie, for that call. Anybody else want to call in? 244-1777. Um, I wanted to switch um, a little bit, Sue, to talk about, speaking of the cost of things, um, property tax. Uh, there's a there's discussion in the legislature about allowing schools to postpone their um, the, the vote itself um, to have some time to probably rework um, rework their budget. And you had a very interesting comment when we were talking about that the other day. Could you talk about that a little bit? 
Yes, well, the legislation passed last week and was signed by the governor. Ah. Um, and it does allow um, school boards to move the date of their budget vote, or um, and actually they can also move the, their entire annual meeting if they want to to a later date. Um, it needs to be done by April fifteenth. The initial um, meeting needs to be done by April fifteenth under that legislation. And um, so, in the past few weeks, school boards have been aware that this legislation um, was moving through the pipeline. And they have been having discussions about whether they want to move forward on town meeting day with um, their their annual meeting and their um, their votes, or whether they want to delay them. And um, really, that's up to each individual board to assess um, what they feel is the best um, move for their district. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. Uh, Neil, I just wanted to compliment you. As I said before, Neil is a prolific writer. If you go to VT Digger and put in Neil's name, it's Neil O'Dell. There are four that I found, four uh, comments that he made, which uh, there's one that's called The Letter to Future Vermonters, and he talks about the public education system being stretched, as we're talking about today, with unfunded mandates and lack of construction funding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we, he talks about the health care. And he talks about the Senate is working to protect private schools at all costs. Neil, I have left you with very little time, but I would love to hear a summary of that comment that you made about the, the private schools. <laughs> yeah, very little time. I'm for sorry a, a about summary. that. I, we may have to have you come back on. No, that's okay. I, you know, I just I, I think the the point here is that folks need to pay attention um, to what's going on. Um, we have uh, what I would call a, a two track system for public education in our state, and one of those tracks includes sending public dollars to private and independent and religious schools. Um, and I think folks need to look very closely at this system that we've set up, um, you know, to see if, uh, you know, I think that we're, there are a few areas here that really need some attention. Um, and uh, I hope people can get engaged on it. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, for for me, you're talking to the choir for sure. You've got to get involved, people. I want to thank you both for what you do. Um, and thanks to the, as Charlie said, thank you to the school board members. It's a volunteer job and it's a lot of work. Um, and thank you for your dedication to our students and our teachers and to Vermonters. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Stay tuned. I have Carol Dawes, who's the Barry City Clerk and Treasurer, and also the Chair of the Legislative Committee of the Vermont Municipal Clerks and Treasurers Association. There's a mouthful. Be right back.